Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we uplift your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, from 2011, I introduced the history of the futuristic philosophy of transhumanism. And from 2013, explain my own philosophy of transhumanitarianism. Transhumanism is an international movement which regards involuntary aspects of the human condition, such as disability suffering, disease, aging, drudge work, and involuntary death as unnecessary and undesirable. Transhumanists support the use of science and technology to improve human mental and physical characteristics and capacities. Transhumanists see research into increasing intelligence as causing accelerated technological development. Computer scientist Werner Vinge has suggested that when acceleration gets fast enough, it would form a technological singularity, a point either at which we can do anything we imagine, or a point beyond which present-day humans can't imagine. Today's online world is one that would be difficult to describe to someone from a few hundred years ago. Could they really understand our choices? How attractive and incredible would the life of a 1970s filing clerk be to a peasant from the 15th century? The singularity may make possible technological utopias, or it may unleash destructive forces. Sociologist James Hughes says that the best possible post-human future is achievable only by ensuring that human enablement technologies are safe, making them available to everyone, and respecting the right of individuals to have control of their own bodies. Transhumanism respects reason and science, and has a commitment to progress. The bioconservatives who oppose transhumanism see altering humanity as a threat, even if it means a greater working memory, or faster muscles, or longer, healthier lives. The key accelerationist technologies are nanotechnology, which is machines working at 10 to the minus 9 metres, very small, cognitive enhancement, which is improvements to the way your brain works, Brain-computer interfaces, which could be a screen, a keyboard, a mouse at present, or it could be a direct neural interface, directly from your brain to the computer. Machine intelligence. And yes, we are talking about intelligent computers, perhaps self-aware computers. Certainly machines that do a lot of what we do. Cosmic engineering and space migration. Space migration is pretty straightforward. It's the movement of humans into space. In fact, it's the settlement of humans into space and on other planets in our solar system, and perhaps further. Cosmic engineering is something on the scale of collecting all of the matter in our solar system that isn't the Earth, and creating a sphere, a shell around our sun, all of which would be made into one giant supercomputer. Solar-powered, collecting all of the energy from the sun, or making a habitable sphere for humans to live on, which would be so big, it wouldn't matter how many children you had, you could not fill it 
for millions of years. Quantum computers, which are exponentially faster than current computers, so we're talking about computers that are billions of trillions of times faster than current ones, within a very short amount of time. Quantum computers are being worked on all around the world. They can do basic calculations at the moment, but nobody yet has a general purpose quantum computer available. Life extension. Humans today in the Western world, with full access to medical technology, can live twice as long as humans a hundred years ago. Even the people who are against any sort of life extension, who are against altering the human condition with technology, usually, unless they're Amish, they want to have access to antibiotics and other medical technologies that bring your life up to about 80 in the Western world at the moment. 40 years, a hundred years ago. And the cornucopia machines. The rise of 3D printers. We now have printers that not only make things in two dimensions, an image of things, but we have printers that can make things in three dimensions. They can make physical solid objects. Now these might be just simple solid objects in plastic, which you can now buy a machine for under $1,000 that can make anything you can design out of plastic, including parts for the machine itself. There are people using 3D printers to make human organs out of basic cell stock. There are people using 3D printers to make food, to make all sorts of things, to make electronics, to make solar cells. There seems to be no limit to what we can do with 3D printers. Ultimately, everything will be made on a desktop manufacturing unit instead of a giant factory some people wish to achieve immortality through their works or through their descendants. I wish to achieve immortality by not dying. The wise words of Woody Allen. So there's a history and politics to transhumanism. Transhumanism has pre-enlightenment roots. Since our earliest ancestors sought to transcend the limitations of the human body, to delay death and to achieve wisdom. Transhumanism arose when people began to use science and technology to achieve these goals instead of magic and spirituality. Enlightenment philosophers such as Diderot and Condorcet suggested that eventually we could achieve radical longevity, machine intelligence, freedom from drudgery and the radical evolution of the human form. The Enlightenment narrative of progress, the belief that we can continually improve our condition through rational scientific human agency, also has a political dimension. The Enlightenment argued for democracy and individual rights. The French version of these ideas also pressed for egalitarianism and a strong democratic state, while the English and American versions were less egalitarian and advocated market freedom instead of individual freedom. The tensions between these two versions of Enlightenment thought are a continuing dynamic with the contemporary transhumanist movement. The resistance to Enlightenment ideas that began 300 years ago still shapes the resistance to transhumanist meliorism, improvement of the human condition, today. Religious conservatives reject the humanist claim that progress can be achieved through purely human agency and predict dire consequences for hubris. On the other hand, political authoritarians, especially those growing out of Enlightenment roots, have embraced and advocated for some transhuman projects. One nasty example was the widespread adoption of eugenics by both the left and the right, 
leading to the systematic coercive sterilization of hundreds of thousands of people for alleged genetic faults. Understandably, after World War II, there was a widespread revulsion on the left against bio-utopian ideas. The left was then pushed further towards a romantic technophobia by environmentalism, the anti-corporate and anti-military new left, the spiritual and pastoral counterculture, and intellectual attacks on the Enlightenment from postmodernists. There were still strains of transhumanist meliorism, however, in ideas such as psychedelic liberation, alternative technology, and post-scarcity anarchism. As a consequence of left techno-skepticism, neoliberals and market anarchists were prominent as advocates for techno-utopianism in the 1970s and 1980s, from the corporate futurists to the anarcho-capitalist dreaming of independent states in space and on abandoned oil rigs. As email on the web began to connect technophiles worldwide, the neoliberal Extropy Institute, founded by philosopher Max Moore, emerged in the 1990s as the first organised advocates for transhumanism. Partly in reaction to the free market views of the American-flavoured extropians, European transhumanists organised the broader World Transhumanist Association, WTA, in the late 1990s. The WTA included both social democrats and neoliberals around a liberal democratic definition of transhumanism, codified in the Transhumanist Declaration. The Bush administration, the religious right, and the emergence of this left-right bioconservative axis led many intellectuals to join the growing transhumanist movement and to clearly advocate for the right to human enhancement. Meanwhile, people gathering under the aegis of the World Transhumanist Association which now has more than 5,000 members in more than 100 countries, were rediscovering the egalitarian strain of Enlightenment thought. Polls of transhumanists find that roughly half are on the left, from communists and left anarchists to American liberals, while only a quarter are on the economic right, from anarcho-capitalists to euro-liberals. While almost all transhumanists are in agreement on cultural politics, this huge diversity of opinion on economics has led to many skirmishes. In 2009, the group Conservatism Plus organised as a network for transhumanists who support libertarian, conservative, minarchist, republican or otherwise conservative viewpoints. For some in the developing world, transhumanism appears as the Enlightenment on steroids, an ideology that invests national, technological and biomedical progress with revolutionary ambitions. For others, such as many Asians, the Western biopolitical polarisation appears to be irrelevant, as there is little resistance to radical applications of technology and much less enthusiasm for radical Western individualism. Finally, like all movements, there have emerged internal tensions between those who would like to reframe transhumanism to make it less threatening, and those who defend its more radical and futuristic ambitions. In an exercise in rebranding, the World Transhumanist Association has renamed itself Humanity Plus and is debating, demoting transhumanism and the idea of the post-human in favour of longevity and cognitive enhancement. In reaction, more radical transhumanists have gathered on the order of cosmic engineers and issued their own yes to the transhumanist manifesto. <laughs> I am the very model of a singularitarian I'm combination transhuman and model estextropian Aggressively I'm changing all my body's biochemistry Because my body's heritage is up to genetically 
Replacing all the cells these bunches here just temporarily. The pattern of my brain embodies weather's continuity. I'll try to improve these patterns with optimal biology. But how will I do that? I need to be smarter. Ah, yes. I'll expand my mental faculties by merging with technology. Expand his mental faculties by merging with And with a new technology, renewable clean energy, remove our pathogens and overcome hunger and poverty. In short, I am a transhuman, a modalist extropian. I am the very model of a singularitarian. In short, he is a transhuman, a modalist extropian. He is the very model of a singularitarian. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. There's a lot of transhumanist themes in science fiction. Exploring my father's book collection at seven, I discovered his collection of science fiction classics amongst all the other genres he also collects, and then sought out more at the library. In those days, before the internet was widely available, I hungered for data, so I joined five separate libraries. I devoured their science fiction and science sections and wrote about magnified intelligence, extremely long lifetimes, expanded abilities, space engineering, people who could transcend the human condition. Solving the world's problems, curing disease, ending poverty, finding peace between people, and exploring the universe. Transhumanists think big. I discovered philosophers like Robert Anton Wilson, who led me to Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary wasn't just researching psychedelic drugs, he wanted to transcend the human condition. In the 1970s, he coined the term SMILE. This is an acronym, S-M-I-L-E, for Space Migration, Intelligence Studying Intelligence, and Life Extension. I found Alan Harrington's The Immortalist and read arguments for how the desire to live forever and the necessity for coping with mortality has warped our history, culture, mythology, and politics. I found a copy of The Prospects of Immortality by Robert Ettinger, where he pointed out that freezing people to revive and heal them of the illness or injury that killed them was physically possible and technologically achievable, eventually, and that it was worth doing even before it had been proved to work, because the chances of you being revived if you're frozen are above zero, whereas if you're buried or cremated, the chances are exactly zero. I encountered the Extropians online in the late 1990s. They were really interesting people with really interesting ideas. Transhumanists believe that the extension and augmentation of human life and abilities through technological means is both achievable and desirable. I think it's already started in the developed world, but it's not evenly distributed. The lack of equality of access is slowing down the development of new technology and solutions that could give us a world of plenty for everyone. I recently saw Elysium. It's a film exploring the transhumanist morality of unevenly distributed life extension technology. In the story, humanity has developed technology to cure most illnesses and injury in minutes, using nanomachines. However, a wealthy elite have restricted access to citizens on their isolated city-state on a space station, even though they could afford to cure everyone in the world. I disagree with the vocal majority of transhumanists on a few things. The difference stems from the origin of transhumanist politics in the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment argued for democracy and individual rights. The French version of those ideas also pressed for egalitarianism and a strong democratic state, while the British and American versions 
were less egalitarian, less democratic, and more in favour of market freedom rather than individual freedom. The most prolific transhumanist writers often advocate market freedom above egalitarianism. They want to be allowed to transcend the human condition, to not be poor, to be healthy, to augment themselves, to become more than they are, but they're not too concerned about whether you do. That's your business. I consider it an emergency that the current ways of extending and augmenting human life are not evenly distributed around the world. It needs to be solved as quickly as possible. People are suffering and dying in ways that can be prevented. Clean water, sanitation, hygiene, smokeless cooking, free healthcare, free education, the kind of guaranteed minimum income that we have in Australia, electricity and the internet. All of these can extend human life up to twice what it was a hundred years ago and magnify human abilities to what they are without them. The difference between a literate and numerate person and an illiterate innumerate person is huge. It's like having superpowers. Add a good education in science and the humanities, and you have the difference between a professional citizen and a peasant. Genetically the same, but with vastly different capabilities. For most of human history, literacy was confined to a very small elite, usually a priesthood. Even outside the priesthood, it was a separate profession of clerks who could read and write. The invention of universal free education is a major innovation whose consequences still haven't played out because it still hasn't reached all of humanity. It makes a difference, not just to the individual, but to their community and society. For most of human history, societies have had all the decision-making and problem-solving in the hands of the ruling elite, writing off everyone else as ignorant peasants. Our society and our organisations still reflect that dichotomy between a ruling elite and ignorant peasants, despite the fact that everybody is getting at least 12 years of education, and nobody in the first world is an ignorant peasant. Education and training are the strongest tools we've learned to increase the ability of human brains. And now we can all have access to all of human knowledge from network computers. The world is in trouble because it's still only a small handful of people making all the decisions and attempting to solve most of the problems. It's a huge burden. It's gotten better the more educated minds we can add to the problem solving. Imagine how much better the world could be with all 6 billion people contributing their educated brains to solving our problems. Their problems. Give them healthy bodies and information technology so they can share their information and thoughts and humanity has a much better chance of solving their big problems quickly enough. Poor people drive the population explosion that frightens biologists because poor people need to have more children. Most of their children die young from disease and without any social safety net, the parents need children to look after them when the diseases of ageing prevent them from working. In developed nations where everyone has access to enough food and healthcare, people choose to have less children, and often no children. The birth rate in wealthy countries like Australia has been shrinking for decades. So merely making everyone rich enough that their children rarely die, and that they're guaranteed an income when the diseases of old age prevent them from working, is enough on its own to solve the population crisis. You solve the labour problem of a reduced birth rate by allowing people the same freedom to travel across borders that we currently restrict to capital and owners of capital, who can move anywhere. If you allow people to travel as freely as money, then you solve the labour problem while we automate every job that a machine can do better than a human, while guaranteeing those who see their jobs replaced by machines have the guaranteed income that allows them to choose a meaningful life 
outside of their old economically forced labour. Having brought free sanitation, healthcare, freedom from forced labour and education to everybody, imagine if through studying what intelligence is and how our brains work, we learn to raise everybody's IQ by 30 points. Effectively raising 30 points of IQ is the difference between someone who's not legally responsible for their actions and someone who's an average citizen. It makes a real difference. Add those extra points on top of a legal moron, and then they can hold down a profession and make responsible decisions. Add it to an average person, and they're suddenly in the Mensa range of high intelligence. They're now bright. Add the same 30 points to brilliant people, and they become geniuses. Now we have all these highly intelligent and educated people with access to all of human knowledge, and all other humans, and you have an international community such as never existed on the face of the earth. To such a community of billions of connected, skilled, educated, gifted people, the world's problems will fall like dominoes, and things will get better. Not just better medical technology, but better organisations, communities and societies. We've barely scratched the surface of how to make the most of the brains we're born with. Developmental science shows us that a stimulating and safe environment allows the brain to reach its highest potential. Modern education and training techniques build on ancient traditions with insights from psychology and neurology to show us more effective and quicker ways to teach and train people. Professions that once required a four-year apprenticeship can be learned in a six-month course or less. Ancient skills like meditation are now widely available for anyone to learn, and they've been shown to improve brain functions like willpower. Ancient memory systems like mnemonics can make an enormous difference to how your memory works. A large number of singularitarians believe acceleration of knowledge, technology and change will only come from machine intelligence, because machine intelligence could design a smarter machine intelligence, and so on, until the machine intelligences are as far above humans as humans are above insects. I think they're wrong. I think acceleration doesn't need a million IQ points and machines who can modify themselves to become smarter. To get us to a world of plenty, health and empowerment for all, we just need to start with the modest increase in IQ that sharing food, sanitation, education network computer brings, helped by the results of intelligence studying intelligence. The whole world, fed and educated and connected, will become smarter and wiser and eliminate the scarcity of resources that causes most of our wars and most of our crimes. That's my vision of the singularity. Looking into the future? Why, here at the Bell Labs, it's part of our duty to look as far ahead as possible. The telephone of the future will be an even more prominent and versatile part of our lives than it is today. Operating on no more power than an ordinary light bulb, the optical maser will be able to carry hundreds of thousands of telephone calls and television programs all at one time on a single beam of light. A touch of a button and picture phones bring the conferees together. In seconds, company executives located around the world are deep in discussions over business details. Even printed material is exchanged among the group by telephonic machines. As if they were all in the same room. As Junior is getting help with his homework. The program comes from an education center and is carried on a special TV circuit via telephone waveguide, a hollow tube that can carry hundreds of television programs and telephone calls at one time. 
dinner. It's almost that time, and Princess is still playing outside with her friends on their helicycles. But her wristwatch radio telephone makes it easy to call even young teenagers home for dinner. The frontiers of the future are not on any map. They are in the minds of men and in the test tubes and laboratories. There are those who say today that opportunities have ceased to exist. Things are finished. We have everything and not enough. There can be no more progress. In any one of thousands of test tubes of today, there may be a million job opportunities for tomorrow. It's a bewildering future, all right. Not because there are no new frontiers, but progress. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the Community Radio Network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.